This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Over 800,000 years ago, the wind howled outside a cave in what one day would become the country of Spain. Just inside the cave, a family tragedy was in motion. Hard times had fallen. Food was scarce. Two children had just died, and the rest of their relatives could do nothing but watch as they went. A fire was prepared, and then it was time for a much darker sort of preparation. Still eons away from the beginning of recorded history, this group of early humans committed what would be seen as a horrendous act from the modern perspective. But for them, it was simply survival. Through cannibalizing their own children, life could be won back from death. This is the story of a family, but not this one. These prehistoric actions would create a ripple that would reverberate down the eons of human history. At the other end of this chain, there was another family linked to the past through a rare and deadly genetic quirk and a strange agent of biology now known as the prion. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on the disease known as fatal familial insomnia, the Italian family cursed by it through generations, and the biological agent called the prion that caused it. Last week, we traced the troubled history of the Venetian family. All their suffering led to a modern descendant named Lisi, who, along with her husband, Ignazio, finally decided to fight back and define the disease in biological terms. This week, we follow a history that developed concurrently with the Venetian family's 20th century fight for the truth. We'll explore how a mysterious infectious agent called the prion emerged into biological consciousness and revealed how some of humanity's greatest challenges, sins, and follies have left a genetic scar on our entire species. From 1765 to 1980, generation after generation in one Venetian family was systematically destroyed by a disease that caused endless insomnia. It always announced itself with an unusually heavy amount of sweat. 
The concerned sufferer would take a look in the mirror to observe how their pupils had shrunk down into small pinpricks of blackness. Over the next few days, their muscles would seize up. Friends and family would notice that they just held themselves differently, as if some strange tension had a grip on their entire form. And when these sufferers laid down to sleep, they simply couldn't. They closed their eyes. They twisted and turned and contorted themselves across their beds, hoping to unlock some position of comfort or of true rest. For the victims of this disease, made up of many horrible symptoms, insomnia was the true killer. Tracked by the author D.T. Max in his work The Family That Couldn't Sleep, some went up to 60 months without a real night's sleep. They would fade in and out of what we might deem consciousness, but their bodies were never able to activate the hormonal balancing systems that are integral for our survival. So, from 1765 to 1980, they died, generation after generation. It seemed unstoppable, indecipherable, inevitable. But then, Lisi came along. Trained as a nurse and married to a doctor named Ignazio, Lisi coordinated an effort for the family to fight back. This was directly motivated by the heart-wrenching deaths of her aunts, Assunta, in 1974, and Pierina in 1979. When we left off in Part 1, Lisi and Ignazio had finally succeeded in convincing doctors to accept there was a real mystery behind the family curse. After generations of mistaken cause-of-death records, Assunta and Pierina's were updated. These records proclaimed that the two women were killed by, quote, familial encephalitis of indeterminable origin. The disease was finally being taken seriously. As Lisi poured over the branching family history they had begun to document, Ignazio dove in to study Purina's brain tissue samples. In conversation with the famed neurologist Dr. Johannes Vildi, Ignazio wondered aloud if the brain damage seen on Pierina's slides might connect to the disease known as Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, or CJD. Recorded cases of CJD showed victims with poor physical coordination, along with signs of delirium before death. Vildi countered by replying that although the specific points of damage to Pierina's brain did match CJD, her brain damage was centered on the thalamus. CJD was not known to affect the thalamus. Thus, this potential lead went cold. The expert should have paid more attention to the inexperienced but intuitive Ignazio. Because he was right, there was a link between CJD and the Venetian family disease. But it was not surprising that no one could tell. For the connection to be clear... This thread of medical history needed to intersect with another parallel thread. And soon, it would. To learn how this finally occurred, we need to go back to where we began, the 18th century. But instead of the Venetian countryside, this thread began in the fields of England. There was something wrong with the sheep. In the first half of the century, breeders such as Robert Bakewell and Sir Joseph Banks had taken control of sheep's mating cycles in order to produce, respectively, more meat and better quality wool. They were so successful, in fact, that sheep today bear more resemblance to Bakewell's bred stock than to the flocks that came before the 18th century. Returning again to D.T. Max, he observed that in 1710, the average sheep weighed 28 pounds. By 1795, the year of Bakewell's death, the average weight for a sheep was 80 pounds. This was DIY early-stage genetic modification. Even if it was accomplished through sheer intuition and pen-and-paper record-keeping and not laboratory science, it was an act of creation. Perhaps that was why it took a member of the clergy to point out the folly of this attempt to play God. In 1772, a farmer named Thomas Beale told his local priest, Thomas Comer, that the sheep in his flock were behaving strangely. 
One by one, a sheep would grow anxious and agitated, often rubbing themselves raw against posts or fences, as if scratching an insatiable itch. They held their heads at odd angles, locked into contorted positions, and then they would die. Beale told Comer that the disease was spreading. His thought was that it must be maggots. Comer was intrigued, and as he dug into the issue, he realized the problem was far more widespread. Eventually, Comer's investigation pointed toward the methodology of breeders like Bakewell and Banks. The disease, coming to be known in England as scrapie, had not been a problem until manipulative breeding strategies took over the marketplace. Though it's not known exactly why scrapie emerged at this time, Comer believed it could have been connected to the new high-calorie diet the breeders were feeding the sheep. This diet included bone meal and meat mixture in some cases. Of course, Bakewell and Banks were not eager to uncover the truth. Their profits were higher than ever. Surely the issue would settle down on its own. Yet scrapie kept spreading and remained a problem across the entire country as the 19th century dawned. Faced with declining domestic wool quality, the English government fostered the development of a wool industry in Australia. As the Australian sheep market took over, Bakewell and Banks' breeding methods slowed down and the threat of scrapie vanished. The problem was gone now. Why worry? It was only sheep after all. But next time, it wouldn't just be sheep. In 1862, science gained a new understanding of infectious disease when Louis Pasteur boiled a solution full of bacteria, sealed it, and then proved that he had created sterile and safe conditions free from infectious agents. Last week, we learned how the Venetians of the 18th century thought that disease spread by scent. By the 20th century, humanity grasped much more about the biological world. Importantly, when it came to the infectious agents like viruses, scientists now understood that although these complex molecular agents were not living things themselves, their goal was to enter living cells and proliferate. Disease, too, was a Darwinian struggle. In the 1950s, the foundations of this common understanding would be shaken, eventually leading to a major crack-up linking diseases like Creutzfeldt-Jakob to the Venetian familial encephalitis. This quake began in the jungle of Papua New Guinea. This island was under Australian colonization after the end of the World Wars. As these Western newcomers plumbed the depths of the dense island foliage, they met many tribes that had never encountered outside life before. Some, like the Foray, did not even know they lived on an island. But there was one mystery that even Western medicine couldn't solve. Many of the foray suffered strange deaths accompanied by intense, full-body tremors. They called it Kuru and believed it arrived via a strong, dark magic. Vincent Zegas, a researcher sent to New Guinea by the Australian government in 1955, refused to write it off as supernatural. He walked amongst the foray and made important observations. The glassiness that took over the eyes of a Kuru victim, their unstable coordination, and the ever-present shivers. He examined blood samples seeking signs of a virus, but he found none. This roadblock lasted until a new Australian ship pulled into port on March 8, 1957, when the eccentric, immoral, and tireless physician Carlton Gaidushek first came to New Guinea. He had heard of the foray and was intensely interested for two reasons. He was fascinated by elements of male sexuality within their culture, and he wanted to uncover the truth about Kuru. In the first case, Gaidushek was less than ideal. A self-admitted pedophile, he spent countless hours among the foray because he was able to exploit some of the children himself. Yet he was not an easy figure to classify. Despite his deviance, he desired to cure the ailing community. 
Guy Duchet quickly teamed up with Zegas and moved from village to village, speaking with and taking the blood of the foray. Gaidushek connected the Kuru shivers to the shaking that accompanied alcoholism. We saw a similar misdiagnosis last week during Italian doctors' examination of Lisi's Aunt Assunta. And as Gaidushek's research reached the Western world, some even connected the Kuru symptoms to CJD, as Ignazio had done with the Venetian family disease. Yet Gaidushek emphasized that Kuru mostly seemed to affect people who were younger than the average CJD patient. As there were no signs of traditional infection with Kuru, Gaidushek knew the typical diagnosis then pointed toward a genetic disorder. But in the 1960s, rival researchers Robert and Shirley Glass arrived. More rigorous and less distracted than Gaidushek, they were able to learn more about the foray's history. They realized that around 50 years before, in the 1910s, the foray had adopted cannibalism from another Guinea tribe. It was not incredibly common, and people were only eaten after they had already died, but the foray had learned not to waste usable food. When Glass tracked this finding against the history of Kuru in the region, they were startled to realize the dates matched up. Kuru had not appeared in the foray until cannibalism had. In defense of his own research's primacy thesis, Gaidushek shot back. He contended the disease must have a genetic component and couldn't have been caused solely by the cannibalism. The practice of cannibalism had been slowly weeded out of the foray's culture since its arrival, and by the late 1950s and 1960s, it was nearly eliminated entirely. How then did Kuru still appear in young members of the Foray tribes? Making things even more complicated, Gaidushek proved that Kuru could be spread by injecting tissues from the conditions human sufferers into test-subject chimpanzees. Conventional wisdom suggested that if it was transmittable, it had to be an infection. Yet Gaidushek could never isolate the virus. Even stranger, he never found any signs of virus DNA. Despite the difficulties he found in proving Kuru was an infection, because he knew it was transmittable, he posited an explanation for the connection between Kuru and CJD. In a grand, unified theory, Gaidushek used broad strokes to link multiple medical mysteries together. He claimed that Scrapey, CJD, and Kuru were all caused by the same infectious agent. It began with Scrapey, the disease that was found in sheep in the late 18th century. Eventually, someone ate an infected sheep, and the disease passed to humans. It presented slightly different symptoms in humans than it did in sheep, and the new condition was called CJD. After that, at some point, a person infected with CJD must have happened to die in New Guinea. When the cannibalistic foray ate this person's body, the disease was transferred again and became known as Kuru. In 1976, Gaidushek won the Nobel Prize for identifying what he had begun to call the slow virus. But many were appalled by his broad strokes and didn't believe he had discovered anything real at all in these so-called slow viruses. To be fair, this was the best the medical community had offered so far. While the Venetian family never came into contact with this theory, it might not have seemed so unreasonable to them if they had. After all, Lisi had traced the disease's first recorded origin back to the mid to late 1700s, the same time that Scrapey appeared in the English flocks of sheep. So far, so good. However, the theory then breaks down fairly quickly. As far as Gaidushek's theory went, CJD was not hereditary, it was an infection. It just didn't make sense that so many in the Venetian family had suffered from their mystery disease if the only way something like CJD passed along was through direct physical contamination. It took the emergence of a new rival to push past this limited theory of slow viruses, a neurologist and biochemist by the name of Stanley Prusner. 
When we return, we'll learn how Prusner made one of the biggest breakthroughs in 20th century neurology. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And now... Back to the story. In 1976, Dr. Carlton Geidushek won the Nobel Prize for identifying a new type of infectious agent termed the slow virus. He claimed that certain diseases, like scrapie, which affected sheep, and the brain diseases, CJD and Kuru, were spread by the same slow virus. He wasn't aware of the Venetian family disease or the endless insomnia it caused, and thus wasn't aware his theory failed to account for yet another mysterious ailment. But though Gaidashek's theory was popular, not everyone bought into it. In the early 1970s, the chemist Stanley Prusner started studying CJD on his own. After witnessing the deaths of a few people infected by CJD, he turned to research done by Tikva Alpa that focused in on the utter resilience of the CJD agent. No typical cure for viruses worked, so Prusner became convinced it wasn't a virus at all. But it wasn't a genetic disorder either. It was some undiscovered type of protein causing CJD. To ground this hypothesis, Prusner leaned on a theory devised by the mathematician J.S. Griffith in 1967. Griffith's theory was called nucleation. This was a process of change that worked in much the same way as a chemical reaction. A corrupted protein would bind to a normal protein. The normal protein would then change its shape to match the corrupted protein. This set off a chain reaction where one protein altered another until all the proteins were corrupted. Prusner explained that this was something new, and he was going to prove exactly what it was, not settling for Gaidashek's vague and mostly unfounded grand theory. But Prusner was seen as an outsider in the medical community. He was never an overachiever in school and attended a state university for his degrees. Still, he was an excellent manager and dedicated fundraiser. In the years between 1975 and 1997, Prusner raised over $56 million in funding and put together a huge team of efficient researchers under his direction. With this brute force approach to research, By the mid-1980s, Prusner's team had done what Gaidashek had found impossible. They had isolated an incredibly pure agent of CJD. As Prusner had suspected, it was far smaller than any known virus, and studied under these intense conditions, scientists could still only find protein. No DNA or RNA in sight. Almost all viruses have either DNA or RNA, So this suggested that the problem was not a virus. Using this isolated infectious agent, Prusner's lab developed an antibody that would react to its presence. If the antibodies reacted, it meant the subject was infected and further research could then be conducted. In this fashion, Prusner and his lab made more advances in 10 years than scientists had since the initial crude studies of Scrapie in the 1770s. This accelerated research at an exponential rate. Instead of waiting years for the symptoms to appear in a subject that had been injected with infected tissue, researchers could simply follow up the initial injection with an antibody injection. 
With all of this now in hand, Prusiner was ready to go public with his discoveries in 1982 and unseat Geidechek's terminology of the slow virus. But first, he needed a name. Inspired by the catchy and amusing quark, recently anointed in the field of astrophysics, Prusiner personally brainstormed hundreds of names for his infectious agent. Eventually, Prusiner found himself a hit. Small, proteinaceous, infectious particle, otherwise known as the prion. With this evocative name in place, Prusiner went public with his counter-theory to Geideshek. Prions were not viruses. They were proteins that could both spontaneously occur in the human body without an infection and could also be transferred as contagious agents. Calling back to Griffith's theory of conformational influence, D.T. Max writes of how, quote, Prusiner posited that prions had two forms, one infectious, one not. If an infectious protein came into contact with a normal one, it bound to it, causing it to change shape into a copy of the infectious one. In this way, the body slowly turned against itself, be it sheep with scrapie or humans with CJD or Kuru. Perhaps most importantly, Prusiner's team was also able to outline three distinct forms of prion disease, doing away with Gaidushek's absurd grand theory once and for all. First, there were the infectious prion diseases mentioned earlier. When a corrupted protein is ingested, it can cause a chain reaction that eventually modifies all of a host's normal proteins. Secondly, there were sporadic cases of prion disorders. While Prusner was unsatisfied to define it as such, there seemed to be some instances where the only explanation was that a random misfire of a protein inside a body caused the overall prion disease. Thirdly, some prion diseases were inherited or genetic. A genetic mutation inherited at birth would cause one prion protein to fold in an aberrant fashion, setting off conformational influence and creating a chain reaction of irregular prions. Whereas Geidushek's theory never made any sense when it came to the Venetian family disease, Prusner's allowance for an inherited strain of prion disease finally offered a believable explanation. It was this realization that eventually led these two parallel threads of medical history to meet. Prusner's theory could also explain Kuru without resorting to Geideshek's notion that a member of the foray once happened to eat someone who died of CJD. A sporadic development of a prion disease occurred in an individual. During the foray's period of cannibalism, that individual's tissue was consumed and the prion disease passed infectiously to a new host. But when the foray ceased practicing cannibalism, the disease stuck around for a few generations as a genetically inherited biological kink in the system. This chain of events was still shocking, but it no longer seemed implausible. The prion was a strange and frightening new agent, but Prusner and his team had seemed to divine some reasoning behind its operation. What remained unexplained, however, was why prions turned bad in the first place. This went against all of the Darwinian theories of disease that had been in place since Pasteur's revolutionary discovery regarding infectious disease. Prions were not another form of life trying to upset our own. They came from inside of us. So it must be reasoned that something about human biology caused them in the first place. This discrepancy gave many in the scientific community the opportunity to deny Prusner's findings. They argued that prions could not simply be proteins. There must be some DNA somewhere inside them at work, still undetectable by human instruments. And despite the strong logic chain in his grand prion theory, Prusner had yet to truly link diseases like Scrapey, CJD, and Kuru together. He had not proven that prions were definitively behind all of them. And before he could, 
he would need an unlikely assist across the Atlantic on the eastern shore of Italy. He would need to learn the story of the Venetian family and their seemingly endless biological curse. The last victim in the Venetian family had been Lisi's aunt Pierina, who passed away in 1979 from the same sleeping sickness that had claimed many before her. Lisi was thrust into an unending paranoia regarding the Venetian family disease. She described these years to D.T. Max as a living hell as she constantly sought signs of the disease in herself and her loved ones. But ironically enough, the next four years passed in relative peace. Lisi's uncle, Silvano, was a big part of this. A warm and giving man, Silvano was a wealthy businessman who always provided when a need arose. He was a perfect representative of what one wants most in a family member. Knowing the unlucky history of this family, it could have almost been predicted that such a good-hearted man would fall victim next. In 1983, Silvano was robbed at gunpoint in the street one night. While he survived the encounter, with the same grace he practiced in everyday life, Lisi would later come to believe it was this stressful encounter that set everything into motion. A few days later, profuse sweat began to pour from Silvano's body. The telltale pupils shrunk. It was happening again. For nine months, Silvano refused to enter treatment. He had already accepted what was happening. He had too much work to do to let go now. It was Lisi's husband, Ignazio, in early 1984, who finally convinced Silvano to enter the Treviso Hospital, where Ignazio worked. Now that he had the authority, Ignazio bypassed all the preliminary tests and immediately designed an EEG, or electroencephalogram, study for Silvano. The EEG can measure and somewhat crudely map electrical activity in the brain. In this way, scientists can conduct comparative studies on patients' brains when they're in one mindset or another. In Silvano's case, instead of the usual short-term measurement, Ignazio decided to innovate. He would run the EEG for over 30 minutes as Silvano wavered between consciousness and unconsciousness, as he did constantly now. Ignazio didn't need to compare Silvano's chart to a normal reading to tell how far off it was. It did not match any kind of EEG reading previously taken of patients in states of sleep or wakefulness. His brain waves alternated rapidly. Ignazio finally proved what he and Lisi had been trying to for years. This didn't correspond to anything recorded in the world of medicine so far. The Venetian familial insomnia was something else, something new. With these results in hand, Ignazio and Lisi reached out to Elio Lugarese, who ran the sleep clinic at the University of Bologna. Along with his neurologist colleague Pietro Cortelli, Lugarese invited them to bring Silvano to Bologna. When they arrived, Silvano was almost bemused. In Max's book, Lisi recalls that Silvano told Lugarese, I am going to die. I've watched my father die and my two sisters die exactly how I will go. He followed that with a smile. I assume you'll want the brain when it's time. Lugarese and Cortelli put Silvano on a perpetual EEG exam. They took hours and hours of readings, trying to identify the purest possible pattern within the data. Lugarese determined that there were small intervals of time where Silvano could be classifiably unconscious, but his readings never indicated that he entered any form of identifiable sleep. As spring waned into summer, Silvano requested that the sigil of his ancestor, the Venetian doctor who was the earliest recorded victim of the family disease, be hung upon his hospital door, as if he was daring history to repeat itself. Sadly, that's exactly what happened. As the weeks passed, Silvano's body contorted. 
He cried out in discomfort all through the night. And then by June 1984, he too was gone. The family's biological clock continued to haunt Lisi and Ignacio. However, this time, new allies would come through for them. When we return, we will follow Prion researchers as they try to pinpoint exactly why Silvano's body turned against him and learn the secrets of the Venetian family disease. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. And now, the conclusion of our story. In 1984, the Venetian family was visited once again by the maddening insomnia that had haunted them for generations. After her uncle Silvano died of the mysterious disease, Lisi sent his brain to a fellow Italian, Pierluigi Gambetti, who now headed a neuropathology division in Cleveland, Ohio. As Gambetti conducted the first full-scale dissection of a brain affected by the family disease, Lugarese, who ran a sleep clinic, continued to study Silvano's EEG results. As we outlined last week, sleep science generally recognizes four main stages of sleep. The second and third phases, as our brain enters cool-down mode, and then as we enter REM dream state, occupy the most time during each night's sleep cycles. However, Lugarese soon clarified that Silvano's brain never entered that second stage cool-down. Instead, his brain would move directly from a state of waking into a REM phase. But unlike average REM phases, where the body becomes essentially immobilized, Silvano's body retained the ability to move. This explains some of the instances of dangerous sleepwalking in previous victims. Their body literally lost the ability to discriminate between reality and dreams during these intervals. Meanwhile, in Cleveland, Gambetti's dissection reinforced what both Ignazio and Johannes Vildi had discovered in Purina's brain years ago. The damage was primarily focused on the thalamus. To reiterate, the thalamus is the brain structure that controls both emotional and physiological impulses, from emotions to body temperature. Since sleep's most beneficial result is a nightly balancing of human chemistry, a damaged thalamus makes sense as the cause for the Venetian disease. Victims of the family curse experienced extreme sweating and problems with their body temperature. Their pupils also contracted into small pinpricks, and of course, their sleep cycles were disturbed. The hypothalamus had already been tenuously linked to sleeplessness, but Gambetti's research was the first that showed an obvious connection between the thalamus and sleep. By 1986, Lugaresi and Gambetti had collected enough data to put together a full account of their findings in the New England Journal of Medicine. They also decided to finally give this deadly disease a name. The Venetian family curse became known as Fatal Familial Insomnia, or FFI. Now, when Lisi and Ignazio hit the pavement to reach the far-flung branches of their family tree, they could tell distant relatives something more specific. But Lugarese and Gambetti still didn't know what type of agent was destroying the thalamus. They had made many breakthroughs, but they still had yet to discover any traditional sign of infectious inflammation. Once again, it took Lisi's efforts on the family front to advance the research further. 
Through her family tree mission in the late 1980s, she came into contact with a previously unknown cousin named Lucia. It was like looking in a mirror. Lucia's side of the family had been haunted by FFI for generations, too. Now it was her sister, Teresa, and cousin Luigia, under the dreadful sway of endless insomnia. While doctors Lugarese and Gambetti could not stop their deaths, these two affected women provided valuable founts of research that might one day be able to save the family's descendants. In their EEG readings, Lugarese was finally able to outline a distinct similarity between FFI brainwave output and recordings from CJD patients. In conjunction with this, Gambetti also found evidence of dead neuron clusters, also known as plaques, outside of the thalamus. This discovery came at precisely the right moment. Gambetti had been keeping up with the exploits of a particular acquaintance, Stanley Prusner, who had recently identified the existence of prions. In 1996, Gambetti sent isolated samples of FFI tissue to Prusner's lab. In recent years, Prusner had managed to define a specific arrangement of prion proteins that caused CJD. Now, with FFI in hand, Prusner found that this was a prion disease, too. The differences in the effects on both brain structures and outward symptoms arose from a different arrangement of prions in the two diseases. Here is where the two strands of history, that of fatal familial insomnia and that of prions, finally linked. With the additional research from Gambetti, Prusner finally had a large enough base of evidence to claim that the prion was a massive discovery indeed. As the 20th century came to a close, the Venetian family finally realized they were not alone in their suffering. Fatal familial insomnia was but one variation of diseases caused by the prion, a biological agent that author D.T. Max deemed a Jekyll-to-Hyde protein. For decades, competing scientists had attempted to unravel the secrets of the prion and the diseases it caused. Eventually, it was Stanley Prusner's time in the spotlight as the prion became global news. Max writes that the Swedish Academy called Prusner's discovery a new biological principle of infection. The recognition of Prusner's work came at a very opportune time, as identifying prions quickly became a matter of national importance in Britain. During the 1990s, a new health scare swept across the island. This time, instead of sheep, it was cows that were displaying signs of troubling and delirious behavior. The real controversy, however, was that the British government was far too lax in protecting the public food chain from these mysteriously infected cows. Over 200,000 sick cows were sold as meat during the 1980s and 1990s, with no safeguards in place and no well-funded research into the issue until it was too late. It was finally given the name bovine spongiform encephalopathy, but became commonly known as mad cow disease. Mad cow disease was indeed a prion-caused infection. It turned out that in order to make fatter and more profitable cows for both meat and dairy production, it became common practice to feed these cows with a protein meal that actually contained cow meat. They fed cows to cows to enhance profit margins. But what they were actually doing was feeding sick cows to healthy cows. Soon enough... A feedback loop began as mad cow prions spread from factory farm to factory farm. This disaster had two positive results. Firstly, it did bring global attention to prion disease. Worldwide funding for research shot up to over $300 million between 1990 and 2000. Prions had gone mainstream. It also led British scientists on a search to learn what made prion disease spread. Luckily, it seemed that the British human population was fairly resistant to mad cow. 
Out of the thousands of people who consumed infected meat, a disproportionately low percentage of them showed signs of the disease. And it was this search that finally leads us back to prehistory, to the northern Spanish caves of Arapuerca, to 800,000 BCE, just outside the mouth of the Grandolina cave system. Archaeologists had pinpointed this location as one of the oldest dig sites for human remains. Recently, the bones of a 14-year-old and 10-year-old had been uncovered at the mouth of Grandolina. The remains showed signs of death by malnutrition, leading archaeologists to theorize that these children died during a time of drought or a poor hunting season. However, their remains also showed other peculiar signs. The bodies were mangled, as if they had been eaten. But the bone breakage was too precise for it to have been done by an animal. Also, the bones of other animals were found scattered about the mouth of the cave, as if this was a place where the humans of this time period gathered to eat. To put it simply, all evidence seemed to point toward cannibalism. Like the foray of New Guinea, these prehistoric people did not want to waste usable food. Here, this archaeological evidence crosses with British neurologist John Collins' genetic investigation into those who seem susceptible to prion diseases. Collins discovered that there was a genetic difference between CJD sufferers and a majority of the population. Some people were genetically more susceptible to CJD, but his lab also determined that there were far more people in the world who were resistant to CJD. Collins considered this fact to be the key to the early spread of prions. He theorized that in prehistoric times, cannibalism was far more prominent than we had ever believed. If true, this practice would have facilitated the spread of prion disease. When healthy people consumed the meat of infected individuals, new infections would be created. The disease would spread rapidly, and the majority of their populations would have been nearly wiped out. Only some infected individuals managed to cling to life and pass on the prion disease to their offspring, including a distant ancestor of the Venetian family. Once the most susceptible portions of the population were gone, prion disease receded back into the annals of history for a time. Yet, as we evolved, we kept bringing the risk of prion disease back into our lives and the lives of the animals around us by forcing a natural consumption into the global food chain and giving prions the breeding ground to flourish. Despite the majority of the population's genetic defense against it, as long as humanity's outsized ambition and appetite existed, prion disease was here to stay. But those like Prusner decided to heed the prion's warning and use it to uncover more about ourselves than we had ever known before. His lab is still at work today. He hopes to someday find some common ground between prion diseases like CJD and FFI and other neurological mysteries like Alzheimer's and MS. While some scoff at this pursuit, it would do us all well to remember how the connection between diseases like CJD, FFI, and Kuru was once scoffed at, too. D.T. Max said it best when he wrote that, quote, there has long been anecdotal information suggesting that prion diseases have something in common. Many can be inherited, but also often just seem to happen by chance. Stress seems to worsen them. The frequency of many increases with age. In fact, Prusner's research has already helped potential victims of prion disease. Gambetti, with help from Prusner's lab, developed a test for fatal familial insomnia in 1993. Lisi called the first extended family reunion in 2001. She and Ignazio urged members of their extended clan to take it. While some did not want to know their results, and Gambetti still had work to do to make it more accurate overall, the clan finally had something they could use to clear away the fog of the family curse. 
At this 2001 meeting, many family members seemed hopeful that a cure could be found. But Ignazio urged caution. Prion diseases are incredibly rare, owing to the disproportionately small population that's susceptible to it. Even with health scares like mad cow and the cultural consciousness, there's not much well-funded research into prions outside of Prusiner's lab. So far, potential treatment drugs like quinacrine and pentason have shown real reductions in symptoms of those suffering from CJD, but they can also result in liver damage and seizures, respectively. On top of those risks, no drug has so far completely eliminated a prion disease and returned a victim to normal health. Prions are notoriously difficult to destroy, even in a highly controlled lab. Heat, radiation, and powerful chemicals have all been proven to do little to turn a hide prion back into a benign jekyll. Once a prion goes bad, it seems, there may not be a way to revert its inevitably fatal course. But even so, there is still hope, and researchers continue to fight to discover a possible cure for prion diseases. Maybe one day, the Venetian family will earn the respite they so desperately deserve. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. For more information on fatal familial insomnia, amongst the many sources we used, we found D.T. Max's investigatory history, The Family That Couldn't Sleep, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Jack Bentel and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs> 